Welcome to the Expansive CEO Podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Chapman, founder of Expansive CEO and X Squared Wealth Planning. Buckle in as we explore how to create true prosperity and build a business and a life that expands beyond yourself and makes a dent in the universe. Welcome everyone to this episode of the Expansive CEO Podcast and this episode of Investment Friday. I am your host, Hannah Chapman, and I have Brad Haynes here with me again today. Brad Haynes, the Chief Investment Officer of Juncture Wealth Strategies. And how are you doing, Brad? What's up? I'm doing great. How are you, Hannah? Well, thank you for having me back. You know, it was it was iffy there. We were touch and go for a minute, right? Nope. For sure. For sure. I get it. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, but we're not going to see you next week. No. I am doing my part in uh, trying to spur the U.S. economy on. And actually, not even the U.S. economy. I'm going to be doing some international travel. So I'm going to uh, be helping out a lot of economies. And so I encourage everybody to get out there and do their part. There, That's what we can call this, right? It's not vacation. It's it's doing your part to support uh, local and international economies. Yes, exactly. We are great, deeply grateful <laughs> for your contribution. And I hope you have a fun and safe time. Thank you. So. Thank you. I hope so as well. Um, but uh, it's it's difficult for me to step away from the markets for any, any amount of time. So um, it will be interesting to see how I tolerate this this separation anxiety that I have. <laughs> you have a codependent relationship with the markets. <laughs> oh, I do. I do. And I have had for 40 years. So what are you, what are you going to do? It's not like it's going to break anytime soon. So, well, I know we're in good hands. We still have wonderful people, um, at juncture, making sure everything else is, is running. Um, but we will miss you next week. So thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Right. Beyond that, we're going to talk about this week because this week has been kind of a roller coaster, right? We have seen some like crazy ups and downs in the market this week um, based on earnings reports that are coming out for some different companies. And yeah, I would love to hear your take on what's happening with, you know, what we're seeing this week. Yeah. So what's interesting is um, we've had obviously we're in the in the midst of earnings season and we're getting a lot of earnings releases um, and earnings are coming in pretty nicely. Um, what's interesting is the impact is the is the stock price reaction, investors reaction to different results. Um, you have some companies that are giving good earnings, good revenue um, surprises Yet their outlooks, they are moderating that outlook a little bit. And that is sending uh, their stock prices down pretty significantly. And you've seen this, this disparity between um, those companies and companies that are, you know, doing okay. Their their, their prices are, are, are reacting quite nicely. And then obviously you had NVIDIA today, which, well, last night that announced, uh, you know, revenue beats, um, earnings beats, cash flow beats. And uh, and took the market higher today, uh, pretty significantly, based so almost solely on their on their earnings uh, on on their earnings outlook and their revenue outlook. So, it's the reaction to these earnings announcements that I find fascinating. That 
there's really kind of separation or bifurcation of the market as to if you start guiding outlook lower, you're probably going to suffer in the stock price, at least in the short term. And then if you do really, really well, you're probably going to, your, your stock price is probably going to rally pretty significantly as well. So, so I'm, I'm going to jump in and do a little translating from that. Sure. Um, and I just wanted to, to say like what a, an earnings beat, right? If someone's hearing that and like, okay, wait, what does that mean? That means they beat the prediction. They did better yep. than their prediction of earnings. So, you know, they put out in before Q4, like we think we're going to do this. We think our earnings are going to be here. We think our cash flow is going to be here. And now they're reporting, you know, in the last week here, they're reporting on what happened in Q4 and saying we did better than. So if there's a beat on earnings, they did better than they expected to. When we say um, that, you know, they're lowering their expectations or lowering their outlook for the future, that means they think, okay, we had predicted previously last quarter, we said we were going to do 10 million in revenue this year in 2024. Now that we're looking at economic forecasts, we think it's going to be 9.8 million instead. So they're shifting their outlook for the whole year. And that is what the market is then taking as, um, you know, their, their information, like you're saying, are, is this good news or bad news? And so one really uh, interesting example from this week, um, you mentioned NVIDIA from yesterday, Palo Alto Networks from the day before actually beat their earnings um, for Q4. So they came out better than they had predicted for Q4 um, on a couple of different measures, but they downgraded their outlook for the full year just by a little bit. And they went down significantly. They had investors were like, oh, no, nope, we're not doing that. We're, we're, you know, sell Palo Alto, right? Whatever. Um, that is not a recommendation, by the way. Um, just no. what, what happened in the market on Wednesday that they sold off pretty dramatically because they downgraded their outlook for the year just slightly. Um, and people were expecting perfection saying, no, we want you to upgrade your outlook and now we're going to, and then we'll reward you. So contrast that then with NVIDIA. What happened with NVIDIA, Brad? Yeah. So NVIDIA came out, um, beat their analyst expectations for both revenue and earnings and actually guided their outlook saying, Hey, we're actually seeing more business. We're actually seeing an increasing business going forward. Uh, because of our the chips that we make for artificial intelligence, are, they're just they're they're the top provider of those chips, and so they're seeing a, all this demand from customers. And so, because they were they were priced for perfection, okay, prior to their earnings release, they had done really well. Um, so the market earlier this week had had sold off uh, Nvidia a little bit. Because I think they were nervous that when you're priced for perfection, and if you don't give perfection, perfect earnings and revenue results, the stock price probably will get punished, like we were saying with Palo Alto. So I think um, people were waiting with bated breath 
when they announced and they did a, a they had really good release um, for earnings and revenues. You know, they they went up a lot. They went up about fourteen percent today. So them being such a large company at one point eight, one point nine trillion in market cap, their their increase is really really impacted is impactful into the market. So the S and P five hundred headline index was driven a lot by NVIDIA and then also sympathy with NVIDIA saying, investors saying, hey, maybe not all these, maybe these stocks need to be looked at again and uh, and purchased. And that's what a, a lot of uh, investors did today. So that kind of rolls us right into the next topic we wanted to cover today, which is, um, you know, what's, what's happening in the S&P 500, right? We, last year, we talked almost ad nauseum about the <laughs> magnificent eight, the top, you know, seven and eight stocks that really carried all of the growth um, almost entirely for the entire year of 2023. But we we didn't actually have a broad based um, base of support, right? So of the S and P 500, it was eight stocks, and then the other 492 were either down for the year or not, you know, not breaking very high into the single digits. So this year we're, you know, a good six weeks in, what kind of shifts have we seen so far to those quote unquote magnificent eight of yes. which NVIDIA is one of them? Yes. NVIDIA is one of them. It's a great question. It's we've seen that group, the magnificent eight start to break down pretty significantly. You've it, it's really become the magnificent two or three, which is NVIDIA, Meta, which is the parent company of Facebook, and then uh, trailing behind those two pretty significantly is Amazon. So those three companies have kind of led the way, um, but you've had Tesla and Apple that have not done nearly as well as the other ones. And so, and Microsoft, it, it's it, it, it's a narrowing at the top of the market. It's a significant narrowing because we had eight stocks last year. Now we have two or three. Um, however, so that's the downside. Let me contrast 2024, which you have a lot more participation in the broader market. So more stocks are going up in 2024 than they were in 2023. So in 2023, the extraordinary thing was you had those magnificent eight stocks and nothing else did did anything, okay? They, they had very low returns, relatively speaking. Whereas today, 2024, it the, the participation is much, much broader. Um, much, much broader. In fact, uh, we were just talking before we started recording, the, the top two sectors year to date in terms of total return are financials and healthcare. So it's not even technology, communication services or the like. It is finance and healthcare. Now, we'll see how today changes those numbers, but this was as of yesterday. Those were the leaders. And so I think it's a very healthy um, environment when a lot of stocks start participating in that upside um, whereas last year I was pretty concerned that we had eight stocks only and nothing else participating. I was worried that that was um, portending a economic slowdown. 
in a, in a major, major way. But uh, fortunately, it looks like we're going to avoid that. So the other aspect here that's super interesting um, with this broadening uh, that you're talking about, this broader base of participation, more companies participating in growth, actually having positive returns so far this year is um, within those sectors. So we talked about healthcare and finance, um, healthcare and financials specifically. When we contrast that last year, the all of those magnificent eight stocks are in the large cap growth sector, right? Not sector, but category rather. So if we, you know, they're in similar sectors though, right? So we're like heavy on communication with meta, heavy on technology um, or technology adjacent, right? Like that was really the theme of last year um, where large tech companies and large tech adjacent companies were the ones that were really, really blossoming. So with healthcare and with financials, my question to you was, hey, aren't those two sectors traditionally more value-based? So rather than large cap growth taking the forefront, like is this like a shift over to more value type companies? And tell us more about that because that's not necessarily the case either. No, it's it's a it's a great question. And sectors for what people, I'm going to define a sector. A sector is a major grouping of companies that do similar similar different things uh, to make money. Okay, so for example, um, technology. It's all of the tech companies that you would imagine fall into that category of, of fall into that sector of te information technology. Now, in those sectors, there are different industries, and those industries are more granular, right? They they start looking at software companies. They start looking at technology hardware companies. They look at computer companies. And all of these, these industries combine to make up the sector. So going into finance and into healthcare, generally hist in, in history, they have been considered more value type industries. They're usually trading at lower PEs. They're trading at higher dividends. It's it's usually kind of a more um, steady eddy type type area. Um, that has changed a lot. The complexion underneath those sectors has changed quite a bit. For example, in finance, you have fintech, so financial technology, which is included in the finance sector, and that is a major major um, can be innovative innovation innovative to help the financial sector get into the new the new century. But there's a lot of in innovation. There's a lot of growth going on in that space. Um, and so they may have a lot of growth characteristics that historically may not have, have been there in that sector in the past. Similarly, with healthcare, you have, you know, healthcare, you have, uh, you know, drug companies, you have healthcare companies like, um, health insurance companies. So those companies have very different dynamics. Um, biotechnology, medical device technology, um, all of the exciting advancements we have in personalized medicine, um, where they can map our genome and, and create a medicine that is specific to us. Um, all of those exciting developments are happening within the healthcare space 
and are actually much, much more growth oriented in, in context than historically healthcare has been. Mm, yeah. So that's, uh, that's pointing again to the broadening, right. Of this, of this, it's interesting to kind of call it a recovery, um, because again, uh, how, how much the top eight stocks lifted the indices last year, but at the same time, it actually is kind of a recovery um, for these companies that really were very stagnant or even down in 2023. Do you see it that way as well? Absolutely. I mean, most stocks are not at their highs. Okay. The headline index, the S&P 500 index is, and it's breaking new highs. Okay. But the reason why is because of those top large companies that make up so much of the index there are they are driving at their highs as well so that's why the headline index is back into breaking new territory in terms of setting new records um but if you look at like for example the small cap space that's still 20 plus percent off of its all-time high if you look at the s p 500 equal weight it's still quite a bit away from its all-time high so to, to a certain extent, if we're going to be, if people are looking to buy in or they felt like they've kind of missed out on this big growth, I would say reevaluate, start investing. Because if the Fed continues, if the Fed starts to lower interest rates here mid year or even mid to, to, you know, second, third quarter, that's going to set off a really big uh, earnings recovery in the US stocks which again, most of them are not trading at their highs. So you're still getting a good deal if you buy in and have a three to five year time horizon for those stocks. Mm. And so where I want to go next and shift the conversation a little bit from here, not too much, um, but talk about, you know, when we're seeing these, some record highs, like you're saying the S&P 500 um, index is at, peak levels right now, a lot of times we'll start to get the doom and gloom side that starts to really, you know, get louder when things are doing really well in certain areas. And so some of the chatter that's been coming up around, okay, well, what's what's coming around the corner to, you know, where's the other shoe going to drop? What's going to, you know, knock the, the pedestal out from under you know, these companies or the indices, where is that coming from? And some people are talking more about banks again, like what's coming due for banks that, you know, where, where might we, we see another um, shakeup in the market there. And so from that perspective, you know, understanding that there are definitely plenty of people who um, get really nervous when things seem like they're going well, there's always, that's always a part of the population for sure. Right. Like things are going well, like let's look for the negative side, speak Absolutely. to that a little bit and, and tell us what do you, what do you see in that regard? Yeah. So it's, uh, um, so regional banks, um, are still in a precarious spot. Uh, last fall, last spring we had this, kind of crisis, but it wasn't really a crisis. It was more of a risk of a crisis um, with regional banks. 
And it was solely it was solely brought on because of higher interest rates. Um, higher interest rates cause depositors to take monies out of savings and checking accounts and put them into higher yielding money market funds, um, CDs, and or uh, invest them or just take them other places, you know, to a brokerage house as opposed to a bank. And so you had a lot of deposit, a flight of deposits, deposits leaving. And at the same time, you had interest rates that had gone up a lot. So when interest rates go up, if you own a, a bond that pays you a fixed rate, fixed interest rate, the price of that value of that bond goes down as interest rates go up. So with the Fed increasing interest rates by 5% in a pretty pretty quick manner, you have banks that have all these bonds and loans on their balance sheets, which are now at a loss, okay? They're trading at a loss. And so you can do that for a very, very long time. When you can't do that is when your depositors start to leave because mm -hmm. deposits are what fund those loans and those bonds. So if depositors leave, you have to raise cash. What do you do? Well, you have to sell some of your loans and securities. Uh, usually they're, they're designated as available for sale or trading securities, those two designations. So you sell those and unfortunately you're recognizing losses. And as you recognize losses, it does two things. One, it gives you a big negative on the on the income statement. And then two, part of it can go right to your balance sheet and reduce your equity. Those are really important for investors, regulators to make sure that that bank is solid and stable. So I, I give you that context because what I'm just about to say is, is related to that pretty significantly. Um, if yields, if interest rates stay high, and, and let's say they don't lower them sometime this year, then we're going to have an issue with the, the regional banks. Mm. Okay. The, the risk goes up. It goes up. Okay. Particularly as um, some of these commercial mortgages on these office buildings are coming due. And so to make, you know, the loan to value ratios work, the owner of the building has to come in with more cash or, some or they have to sell the building or the bank has to uh what we call extend and pretend basically they take the current mortgage and instead of coming due this year it's going to come due three years from now at and you're going to have the exact same rate and we're just going to pretend you're not at a loss until until things get better and we can deal with this situation in time so uh it, if, however, they start to lower interest rates, that is going to um, really mitigate the mitigate the potential for those regional banks to have a hard time. Because again, as they lower interest rates, the value of those securities on their balance sheets go up in value. So all of a sudden it starts to solve that issue. And as you have lower interest rates, depositors start to stay longer or you start to attract depositors back because now the differential between the money market fund and your savings account isn't that great. So now you're, you're like, well, I'd rather have it at the bank. It's easier. So 
you you go to the bank depository um, account of your choice. So there's two things that really work for it as interest rates come down. If interest rates stay high, it's going to be a it, it can be a tough thing for some for some, not all, very few, but some regional banks. Mm. Okay, so this and we've been talking about that um, for the better part of a year now as well, right? The um, the commercial real estate regional banking connection, um, how how heavy that is, how how much commercial real estate relies on funding from um, regional banks. And so that that connection between those two sectors is really important as well for us to keep keep paying attention to. Yeah. And I would say it's not just commercial real estate, it's office. Okay. So banks, regional banks that have a very large exposure to office buildings are the ones that, that are going to have a very difficult time. Commercial real estate in and of itself all the other areas are actually doing quite well. They're actually really healthy. So those are in good shape. So uh, so I, I want to make sure that everybody understands that commercial real estate has a lot of different sectors in it. One of them is office. And office is the one that has the issues currently. Multifamily doesn't really have it. Um, uh, industrial space doesn't really have it. Residential housing clearly does not have it as as the prices are high still. So there's a lot of different types of real estate that go into commercial real estate. The one we're specifically talking about having trouble is banks that have lent too much too much money to office building owners. Mm, that that's a really great distinction, and you know, goes back to the sector discussion um, that we had a little bit ago, really understanding, taking an x-ray of, you know, what, what is underpinning these sectors. Um, and I think that actually also harkens back to uh, the episode we did on risk, different types of risk um, and yeah. how important that is. Um, so if you didn't hear that episode, it's actually just a few episodes back it's really excellent um, special episode on type, you know, the types of risk that uh, we look at when we are evaluating securities, um, and and really understanding, taking a, like a like a more true um, accounting of what's inside of a portfolio. And so you're saying, even with a regional bank, between different regional banks, if one has loaned heavily to office space, commercial real estate, they might be in trouble versus another regional bank that's loaned out heavily to industrial warehousing, for example, which is, again, everywhere. I know everywhere I've driven, seeing warehouses go up within months, right? And then being filled like, yeah, the growth there has been like eye-popping. Yeah, yeah, tremendous is a good way to put it. Um those regional banks are likely doing just fine. Um, so yeah, the risk the risk discussion comes back. Absolutely, absolutely. It's you know it's uh, pe- people talk about the stock market, and, and in many ways it's a market of stocks, right? And so, and I think in our world sometimes we conflate that we think that all stocks are exactly the same. And and they're just not. 
there's there's many many variations so just knowing what you own is important um, if you're doing it for yourself um, if you're doing it with an advisor which we would recommend um, they know they know what you own and how much you own of it so that's important mm -hmm. should know anyway should know. <laughs> if they, they don't know give hannah a call <laughs> there we go um yeah exactly and that actually so last question here um that i think would be really interesting to to discuss then is um index investing right because when when you talk about the market of stocks uh and all of the different stocks that are available you know over the last couple of decades there's been a big shift into heavily into index investing where then people feel that they both do and don't own all of those stocks, right? Instead of owning the individual stocks, they own the indice. But what does that actually mean? Let's break that down for a moment so that people understand what's happening when they invest in, you know, um, let's say an ETF, an exchange traded fund, or a mutual fund that follows an indice. Yeah. So uh, all it is, for example, if someone wants to buy an S&P 500 ETF, exchange traded fund based on the S&P 500 index, um, I'm going to give a simplistic example is, let's say they have a billion dollars in that ETF. That ETF buys a billion dollars of the different securities in the S&P 500 with their the same weightings as that index. Okay, so it's a capitalization weighted index. Now, so when you buy, a, you know, a couple of shares of that S&P 500 ETF, you own a small proportion of each one of those positions. That can be a very, very good way if, for example, you don't have enough money to diversify on your own with individual securities. It's a great way to do it. It's a great way to immediately gain um, access to a, 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 a large number of stocks. Um, but what I would say is you have to watch out for the pitfalls of index investing as well. Um, and one of the pitfalls, which we saw last year, it's continuing a little bit this year is that market, market capitalization weighting. What happens is, um, as stocks run up, the ones that are the largest have an overwhelmingly influence on that index. So as they run up, let's say they're over, over, let, let's say those top stocks run up to a point that they are clearly overvalued. Okay. Well, when you have an index, there's really nothing you can do about it. You can sell the index, but then you're not invested. So what do you do? Well, it's, you just have to write it. You have to just have to write it out. Okay. Um, it's not a bad way to go. It's actually a very, very good way to go. But once you get to the point where you have enough assets, uh, my suggestion is you start to look for buying some of the individual stocks that are in that index. Um, it can be more efficient. It can be more, um, it, it, you can have a better understanding of what you own and why you own it. And that allows you to go through some of the really difficult market pullbacks that we have from time to time because you understand what you own instead of just a, a you know 500 different companies. You own 
10 to 20 to 30 different companies that you know have have good long-term potential. Mm. And what point do you feel that that, that shift can happen um, most, um, let's say most organically or where, where it starts to really make sense? Like, is there a portfolio level where that starts to, to make sense or is it really individual? It's really individual because, for example, if you're a young, aggressive investor, um, you can do it at a much smaller dollar amount. Um, typically I find people who want to index are, are much older because they don't want to worry about the different companies, the, the different stocks. Okay. Um, or they hire someone like me that I worry about it for them, um, or you, where you can worry about it for them. So, um, that's typically where, where we, where, where we find is it, it's really dependent on their risk tolerance and their desire. You know, a, a lot of people are completely fine having an index fund for the rest of their lives. And that's great. That's an, that is an excellent choice. Um, I don't think you'll find any financial professional that'll tell you that's bad. Um, it's generally very, very good choice. Um, you just have to understand that you're going to go through these times where certain parts of those markets are overvalued and you just have to wait those times out. Um, so. Mm. Is there, in your opinion, a time when more active management outshines the more passive side, right? So index investing is considered uh, passive investing for the most part, right? Versus yep. active investment, which is being the one, you know, picking individual stocks or like creating a more um, specific portfolio. So where do you see a, a different point for one of those being better than the other? Anytime where your goals vary from the average investor, you, active management will outperform to those expectations. So one of the downturns, one of the, one of the real travesties in our industry is people will compare active management to a passive index and, and accord the difference in returns as to whether they're whether they're good or bad, okay? Um, when it could be neither is the case because each investor is different than the, if their goals vary from the average investor in that index fund, then we could be hitting your goals with a lower return than the index because we have much less risk than the, than the index. And that's where I think people, I, I mean, I think consultants and some ac academics have really misread what active managers do. We don't pretend, we, we don't, we don't say we're just going to beat the index to beat the index. Okay. Um, like for example, in, in juncture well strategies, you, the benchmark is what your financial plan dictates to get you from point A to your financial goal, mm. that's that that's your that's your benchmark, not the S and P five hundred, the Dow Jones, or or any other index. Okay, it's it had that is it may give you some context, but really what we're trying to do is get you from point A to point B with the least amount of risk as possible. Um, 
So indexing is great, but when your goals start to vary from the average person in that index fund, then it's time you need to start looking at more active managers. Um, for example, active managers, we have a lot of indices in our in our portfolios. You know, we run portfolios that are almost exclusively indices for some people because that's what they feel comfortable with. Um, but we use those in different weighting, different management styles to generate return to fit the client's need, the client's goal, the client's risk tolerance. And so that's where it's really important. Um, that's really where it's important. And for most part, the average investor in, in an index fund is a pension plan. Mm. So if you're different than a pension plan that has an, an indefinite life, it's going to be around forever, potentially. They spend a certain amount of money every year on, if you're different than that, then my suggestion is you start to analyze your portfolio in context of your goals and not of a pension fund's goals. Mm. So interesting. Such a good insight to um, end for today on. And as always, we absolutely love answering questions from audience, from clients, from listeners. Uh, we would love to hear from you. And you can email me for the podcast specifically at Hannah, H-A-N-N-A-H, at expansiveceo.com. Um, and just put, you know, podcast question in the, in the subject line. Um, and we will answer that if we can, if it's something we can answer, most things we can, we can figure it out, um, for the podcast and Brad, how can people get a hold of you? You can get a hold of me at B Haynes, B H A I N E S at junctionwealth.com. Or you can call me at 480-253-4100. Um, and just ask for me. Um, that's the best way to get a hold of me. Or you can look on our website, www.juncturewealth.com. Awesome. Thank you for being here. I hope you have a fabulous vacation spurring on the economy next week. Um, but take some time for you. Let, you know, just team's Thank got- Thank you, I will try. <laughs> right? Team, team has got things under control. It will be good. Everything will be here for you when you get back. So perfect. Thank you. I appreciate it. And we will see you all next week. Thanks for being here. Bye. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening and be sure to like and subscribe. And again, if anything resonated with you from this episode, I would love to hear from you. Email me at Hannah, H-A-N-N-A-H, at expansiveceo.com and tell me about it. And if you're ready for your greatest expansion, you can find ways to work with me at expansiveceo.com and at xsquaredwealthplanning.com. That's X, the numeral two, wealthplanning.com. So until next time, remember that there is enough, you are enough, and your birthright in this lifetime is to be expansive.